The reading this morning is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you, who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Well, as Libby mentioned, what we're doing today is we're concluding our series that we've been doing right the way through Lent and during this Easter season. Uh, of looking at the cross and looking at the meaning of the cross and looking at the pictures of the cross in the New Testament. And these four or five different sort of motifs or images, pictures of the cross. And we conclude looking at the whole idea of peace and reconciliation. Hopefully you managed to catch uh, it on the news this week, but it, it was perhaps the moment of the week, if not the month of the year so far. The funeral service for the journalist Lyra McKee uh, in Northern Ireland. And that amazing moment when the priest, Father Martin McGill, with the politicians from the North and the South and from the UK as well, lined up on the first two pews. Uh, There was the President of Ireland, there was the Prime Minister of Great Britain, there was the Taoiseach of Ireland behind them, there were the party leaders from Northern Ireland and from Scotland. And he commended them for standing together as different leaders from different parts of the community on the Cregan Road on the Good Friday. But then he just stopped in the middle of his his talk, of his homily, and said, but why in the name of God did it take the death of a 29-year-old woman with her whole life in front of her to get us to this point? And there was that spine-tingling moment as people started to applaud. And actually, it started outside the cathedral. And a bit like the same thing that happened during Princess Diana's funeral, 
A wave of applause started from the back and started to come to the front. And I don't know about you, but I watched on the news this week as politicians suddenly realized what was going on behind them and didn't quite know what to do. And eventually, eventually they started to clap and eventually realized that they had to stand, almost forced to stand by the wave of emotion that was being expressed behind them. I've preached at lots of funerals. I have never got a standing ovation at a funeral. It was a quite remarkable moment. Because what Father McGill was putting his finger on was the desire of the people in Northern Ireland and in Ireland for peace. A desire not to go back to the bad old days of what we called the Troubles, where certainly in this church and lots of churches around the world, every week we prayed for the people of Northern Ireland and we prayed for an end to the Troubles. And the hope, the prayer, is that this death signifies the end, that actually there's no going back. The reality is, as human beings, we are very good at building walls. Whether it's the so-called peace wall in Belfast, it's a funny sort of peace that has to be kept by a wall being built between people. Or perhaps it's the wall in the West Bank, in Palestine, that the Israeli, Israel government have built. Or perhaps it's the wall that was there in Berlin for so many decades. We're very good as human beings at building walls. Apparently the first work that was begun on the Great Wall of China dated back to the 7th century BC. We are very good at building walls. Some of those walls are national, some of those walls are racial, some of those walls are ethnic, some of those walls are religious, some of those walls are personal. We are very good as human beings at building walls. Right from centuries ago up to the present time, as President Trump tries to build this wall on the US-Mexico border, we are very good at building walls. There's even been some Christian theologians in America who've tried to explain theologically why the building of walls is a good thing and can be justified from Scripture. They seem to be reading a different Bible to the one that I read. In the final talk of our series, looking at the cross of Jesus Christ, we come to this perhaps most powerful image or motif, that of reconciliation or peace, of relationships restored and reconciled, of, according to Paul in Ephesians, that passage that Julie read for us a few moments ago, of a wall of hostility having been destroyed by the death of Jesus on that first Good Friday. We've looked at the other powerful explanations of the cross, images, for example, from the temple of sacrifice and atonement. We've thought about the way in which Jesus was represented as the Paschal Lamb, as the sacrifice that was given in the temple. 
We've thought about the marketplace and the picture of redemption with slaves being purchased and bought back and an exchange going on. We've thought about the idea of the law court and justification as the prisoner is accused and found guilty, but the judge chooses to take the punishment upon himself. And then there's this fourth and final picture, that of just of reconciliation and of peace, of walls coming down, and this incredibly powerful picture that Paul uses in Ephesians of the dividing wall of hostility being broken down. It is quite striking that in the first words that Jesus spoke to his disciples, his followers, in that upper room on that first Easter Sunday evening, the first words that the risen Jesus spoke to his disciples were, peace be with you. As he appeared to them, as he came into that room, perhaps walking through the locked doors, as he came through the wall and proved he wasn't a ghost by eating a piece of fish, because we all know that ghosts eat fish or don't eat fish, he simply said to them, peace be with you. Maybe it was his emotional intelligence that realized that the disciples needed to hear those words as this Jesus, whom they thought that was dead and who died 48 hours before, now suddenly appears to them. Maybe they need to hear those words, peace be with you. Maybe you need to hear those words this morning because of what's going on in your life because of what's going on in your heart, what's going on in your head. You need to hear the words that the risen Jesus speaks to his followers today, saying, peace be with you. John tells us that after that, he breathed his Holy Spirit upon them. And as he breathed his Holy Spirit upon them, it was his peace, his shalom, that Jesus breathed into them. And maybe like me this morning, you need to breathe in the peace of Jesus today. You need to hear those words. You need to feel the breath of the Spirit breathing peace into you. It's quite striking again that Jesus speaks those words when he, he appears to the disciples in the middle of the storm. Jesus comes to them walking on the water and says, peace be with you. Jesus doesn't remove them from the storm, but he comes to them in the middle of the storm and speaks, peace be with you. As he lays out what it is to belong to the kingdom of God in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, his first thing is, blessed are the peacemakers. We are to be people who carry, who make peace, not peacekeepers. He didn't say, blessed are the peacekeepers. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. The UN are the peacekeepers. The Christian church are called to be peacemakers, who go into places, into relationships that are broken, places of conflict and who bring people together, who bring the peace, the shalom, the wholeness of God, because that is what Jesus died for. 
The Apostle Paul doesn't mince his words in Ephesians chapter 2 as he writes to this church in Ephesus. In chapter 2 and verse 12, he says this, You were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God. That's the way he puts it. As one writer puts it, they were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. They were strangers and aliens. That's the way Paul describes them. That's the way Paul describes us before we came to know Jesus Christ. We were strangers and aliens to God. We weren't good people, nice people doing our best. But like refugees leaving Syria, we were strangers and aliens. We were homeless. We were godless. We were hopeless. You were, he says, the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, called out by the circumcision, the Jewish people. But now, he says, and those two words show that something fundamental has changed. But now, something has fundamentally shifted, and that something is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he uses this incredibly powerful picture in verse 13. He says, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. So when we were outside of Christ, when we didn't know Jesus, when we were strangers, when we were aliens, Paul says, we were once far away from God. And that was who we were. We were strangers, we were aliens, and God was far away. We were far away from God. But now, through the death, through the resurrection of Jesus, we who once were far away have been brought near. And look who's moved. It's not us. It's God. God has come to us in the person of Jesus. God has drawn near. God has become one of us. He's taken on flesh and blood. He's come down to our level, literally. And we who once who were far away, we've been brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on to describe three things. He talks about, firstly, in verse 15, a new humanity. His purpose, he says, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. He describes humanity being recreated. Humanity being brought together. Humanity being reconciled, not just to God, but also to each other. And Paul, and think about this, Paul, who was a Jew amongst Jews a member of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee amongst Pharisees, he takes the very things that were precious to the Jewish people, circumcision, the law, and the temple, to make his point. With the temple, there was a literal wall of hostility. So in the temple in Jerusalem, at the time that Paul was writing, there was the temple. And on the same level as the temple... There was a court. There was a court for Jewish men. 
And then, separate to that, there was a court for Jewish women. Now, that's a whole different talk. We're not going to get into that now. But there was a court for Jewish men, and then there was a court for Jewish women. You then went down five steps, and there was a wall. You went through that wall, through a door. You then went down another 14 steps, and there was another wall. And this wall was a bigger wall. This wall was a meter and a half high. And on the other side of this wall, that was 19 steps down from the level of the temple and the level of the court for Jewish men and the court for Jewish women, 19 levels down was this wall, a meter and a half big. And on the other side of that wall was the court of the Gentiles. And this was literally the dividing wall of hostility. On this wall, there were notices posted in Greek and Latin. And these notices didn't say trespassers will be prosecuted. They said trespassers will be executed. But they were only written in Greek and they were only written in Latin even though it's in the middle of Jerusalem, they weren't written in Hebrew. Because the Jewish people were free to go up the 19 steps into the courts for Jewish men and into the court for Jewish women. But if you were a Gentile, you could see it all going on, but you were 19 levels down and you were separated by this dividing wall of hostility. Paul says, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, this dividing wall of hostility has been taken down. It's been broken down. And now we who once were far away have been brought near, and we can go into the Holy of Holies. We can talk to Jesus face to face. We can talk to God the Father face to face because of what Jesus has done. The dividing wall of hostility has been destroyed. So he pictures this new humanity. He then goes on to talk about a new temple in verse 22. And again, the temple was was sacrosanct to the Jewish people. The temple was the the very center of the nation. It was the place where Jews believed God lived. It was the place where Jews believed God met people. The priest going in once a year, wearing special clothes, saying special words, having been specially chosen. The chosen priest could go into the Holy of Holies one day a year. But now, Paul says, a new temple is being built. And this new temple isn't situated in Jerusalem. And it isn't made of bricks. It isn't made of stone. The very symbol of Israel's faith and culture and society and musical life even. The place where the Jews thought God lived. The place where heaven and earth met. This is being rebuilt, Paul says, not with stones or pillars or arches or altars, but built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. It's the first time that the two have been linked together. 
The apostles and the prophets, people who spoke God's word in what we would call the Old Testament and people who spoke God's word and made God known in what we would call the New Testament, they're brought together. The apostles and the prophets built on the chief cornerstone, Jesus. And Paul says, you are being built together into the new temple. So look around you. Go on. Look around you. What you can see are bricks. Bricks of the new temple. Because we, the living stones, that's the image that Peter uses later, we are the bricks of the new temple, the place where God lives, the place where God meets people, not in special places. Where God meets people isn't in special places. Places are important, buildings are important, seven million pounds was a good thing to do. But this isn't fundamentally where God lives. God lives here. God lives where people meet with each other. God resides in us by his spirit. Not in one place once a year, but now, as we'll see, as we look at the work of the Holy Spirit over the next few weeks, now given to everybody who believes in Jesus and every follower of Jesus, old and young and male or female, now the life of God, that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, put into you and put into me. And what, what Paul is picturing this is this new humanity, this new temple, this new place where God lives. As God brings all these people together, Jews and Gentiles together, and makes a new building. One of the things that struck me when I moved to, to Scotland was the different stones that different places use. So that picture on the left, where is that place? Glasgow. <laughs> Glasgow. Where is that place on the right? Edinburgh, it's recognisable. Recognisable by our stonework. If you go to Aberdeen, there's another colour. It's, it's nice. On the one day a year the sun shines, it's beautiful. But we are known, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Aberdeen, by different stones. The picture that Paul is using here is of different stones being brought together in order to make a new temple, in order to be a new place where God lives, where God reveals himself. And that's been made possible, Paul says, by the death and resurrection of Jesus. You who once who were far away, you've been brought near. Now you are being built together, built on the apostles and prophets, on the chief cornerstone himself, Christ Jesus our Lord. Striking, isn't it, in the aftermath of the fire at Notre Dame Cathedral, where already £650 million has been pledged to rebuild it, some people are asking, is it worth it? One particularly bizarre suggestion was made this week that it should be rebuilt as a multi-faith centre. I think it's a cathedral to Jesus. The clue's in the name, Notre Dame. But actually, it's not the church. It's not the church. The church met in Notre Dame Cathedral, and the church, that congregation, is still meeting. 
elsewhere, in a prefabricated hut somewhere in Paris. It's a Parisian prefabricated hut. It's a very nice prefabricated hut. But the church is still meeting. It doesn't need the building to meet him. So Paul speaks about a new humanity. He speaks about a new temple. And finally, in verse 13, he speaks about a new identity. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Identity is very much in the news at the moment. Whether people can define themselves just by they choose, whether it's male or female or non-binary or transgender, all seemingly is up for discussion. In Ephesus... There was a question of identity. In the ancient world, there was a question of identity. And the question of identity was very simple. Identity meant that you fell into one of two camps. You were either Jewish or you weren't. You were either Gentile or you were Jew. You were either circumcised or you were uncircumcised. And that was the divide. Paul says that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is now a new identity. Greek, Roman, Egyptian, Mesopotamian, Chinese, and the rest of the known world has been brought together. He says, you who are far away, you've been brought near. You who are foreigners, you're now fellow citizens. You who are strangers, you're now family members. You who are separated, you're now joined in with the bricks. You who are godless and now being built together as a temple, built into a dwelling where God lives by his spirit. That's what he says in verse 22. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And Paul paints this amazing picture that is both cosmic and personal, that the whole of creation has been changed because of the events of that first Easter, that creation itself has been affected deeply, right at its very heart, right at its very core, but so too have we as individual human beings. Because once we were far away, and now we've been brought near. Once we were aliens and strangers, now we're members of the same family. Once we were excluded, now we're included. Once we were spectators, 19 levels down on the other side of the dividing wall, and now we can go into the Holy of Holies. You who once were far away have been brought near, Paul says. And shalom has four aspects to it. The peace of God. Peace with God. Peace with ourselves, peace with each other, and peace with creation. And so if the cross of Jesus means anything, if the resurrection of Jesus means anything, it means that you and I are called to be people of peace. People who know God's peace. People who experience God's peace. People who share God's peace. People who take out God's peace. People who demonstrate God's peace because our identity is secure and we know who we are in Christ. And if you look at our world, if you look at our culture, if you look at our society, if you look at our politics, whether it's in a a synagogue in the US, whether it's in a mosque in New Zealand, 
whether it's in churches in Sri Lanka, our world is desperate for peace. Whether it's in a broken marriage, whether it's in a relationship between parents and children, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in the church, our world is desperate for peace. And so people will go to yoga classes and people will go to mindfulness classes and people will go to meditation classes and people will go for mediation sessions. And whether it's mediation or meditation or yoga or mindfulness, people are desperate for peace. And we've got something to share. How do you get peace? What is the peace? The peace that only God can offer. The peace that only God can bring. The peace that according to the New Testament, this world does not understand and will never understand. A peace beyond all understanding that was achieved through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. A peace which is based on the very presence of God living in and through us. We have been reconciled, Paul says. We've experienced God's peace. And he calls us to go and share that peace with the world around us. Libby.